I've done one or two um, little bits and pieces, you know, sort of creeping in back to work. You know, I did a, an Italian food festival back in August, which was really fantastic. You've been doing this for so long. Do you get antsy when you haven't been on the road for a while? Well, I mean, it's a bit beyond antsy, you know, two, two years off. <laughs> it's a bit beyond it. You start to think, um, you really do start to think that you don't, you don't know how to do it anymore, or indeed whether you ever did know how to do it any uh, do it ever do it, you know. Let alone stand, get in front of an audience again, what they're going to make of it. It's uh, you know, I thought, righty, they're not going to. Who's going to want to listen to this old grandpa music, you know? After after this, it, but it was fantastic that little tour we did. The audiences were great. They showed up as well. I was warned that there, you know, there might not be anybody there. I don't think this is just pertains to touring, but just generally, I mean, something that I've noticed just in terms of actually being able to leave my apartment, you build up a lot of momentum in life when you're used to doing something and two years off of something, then the doubt really starts to creep in. Yes, the doubt. Yes, indeed. But I kept, I, I'd sort of kept in its sort of match fit all through it. You know, I kept, well, I wouldn't say I rehearsed every day, you know, but I play the guitar every day. Well, I do anyway, you know, it's sort of, sort of you know, that's no, not a chore. But I certainly started, you know, I kept trying to write songs all, all the time and with various amounts of success. And, um, and also to, to, to sort of keep the, keep my catalogue valid you know as i as i saw it so so you didn't so i didn't just look at a list of tunes you know and my heart have my heart sink you know <laughs> having to you know wade through them again you know so and it, and that stood me in good stead I think. are you generally somebody who keeps i often use the term office hours when it comes to songwriting of just carving out a certain number of hours during the day that you sit down and would shed some some songs no i don't anymore uh, i got i got prodded into it a few years ago by my um my old friend john hyatt who told me that he'd uh, shortly after he moved to nashville he said uh, he told me that he he rented an office and got a couple of uh, guitars in there you know a few guitars and an amplifier and a keyboard and and every day he'd go in there and if he didn't write a song or preferably two He'd be very, very disappointed. And, and I thought, oh, my God, I couldn't do that, you know, but I, I better have a go, you know. So I, uh, there was a place not far from where I live. It's a, it's a pub, actually, but it had this really fantastic kind of, well, like a, a, a community hall sort of attached to it. They have dances and there's a comedy club there and blah, 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 you know, but it's got fantastic acoustics in this only a little place sprung wooden dance floor sort of arched ceiling in sort of 1920s i suppose it was built and i i started renting it in the afternoon i'd go down there and and uh just sing and i didn't take any equipment well, a little bit of uh, a, a guitar equipment but i'd just sing into the uh room and um see what see what came out and i did actually write a few songs i wouldn't say that there was one a day you know <laughs> that's that's sort of massively um prolific you know for me but uh, I certainly did knock out a few, um, but doing that way. But I don't know. They they changed the 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 arrangements down there. I didn't like going anymore, so I fell out of it. It sounds like you found a, a special place, something that you haven't been able to to recapture since then. Yeah, I, I suppose I, I 
I, I didn't think it was, it, it never became a sort of a big deal for me. You know, I found I could do it. I can actually write songs in my car, you know, when I'm shopping, you know, walking down the street. Uh, and in fact, um, I've, al- I, I've always been quite a sort of loner in, in many ways. And uh, so I haven't felt the need really to go somewhere and do it. I just did it because Hyatt, you know, was sort of encouraged me to. A little bit of peer pressure, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. We did actually, um, uh, we did actually record uh, an album in this, in this uh, place that I was just describing. And we thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic. It's, we'll do remote recording, you know, it'll be much cheaper. And, um, but in fact, when we started, and the acoustics would be great, you know. And, uh, but when we started, we realized that it was very popular, this little community hall. And, uh, and even though they rented it to us, in the evenings, um, they had the sort of Cub Scouts, the Keep Fit Club, the sort of political meetings and uh, comedy, uh, this and that. And um, so we had to um, set up and take down all the gear, you know, at the end of ev- uh, at the end of every uh, day. So in the end, the thing the thing wound up costing the same as um, bridge over troubled waters. I think we <laughs> it, cer- it certainly wasn't um, economic, but it was a good record. Have you gotten better at collaboration when it comes to the songwriting part of the process? Mm, well. I, uh, I, I, you know, I've had I've had uh, limited success with 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 collaborating. Really, I, I I generally when I collaborate with someone, I always do what they su- suggest. You know, I never argue with them. So I, I I found, especially when I was producing records, that that was a very good idea to to do that because very often, very often. The other person's idea was much better than mine, and and also in songwriting as well. But it's a process that I find, rightly or wrongly, I, I I'm much happier when I do it as a sort of a solitary and as a solitary um, occupation. Um, but I have, I, you know, I've written a, quite a few songs with other people. Yeah, I've heard you describe your time as a producer, and it sounds like you were more. It was more organizational than anything. That you know, you weren't necessarily calling the shots in the way that we might consider a producer now. Yes, well, in in my era, the the record producer's role was much more of a, as a sort of cheerleader, really, and a sort of music fan. You know, who who would just remind the group of uh, the the influences they should be uh, sort of shepherd them into a sort of like like a sheepdog, you know, herding sheep into one of those corrals, like in the competition they have up in Scotland, you know. Yes, father confessor, cheerleader, that sort of thing. And uh, I barely used to touch the um, the actual knobs, whereas now the producer, I don't really know. What they do, it seems to like a like a much more of a, techno, a technological job, record producing now, than uh, what what I used to do in the olden days. Uh, anyone could be a record producer, really. if you had the front, you know, the, the uh, as we say, you know, the, you had the feeling that you'd get people going. Um, then you could get a job as a record producer, and pretty pretty well paid work it was too. You know, so it was all all kinds of of chances it was well paid and you worked on some of what i would consider the best 
albums of of the era as essentially the in-house producer at Stiff. It sounds like sounds like a pretty good gig at the end of the day. Why didn't it stick ultimately? Well, I got um, I, I I never took to the to the seismic shift that that, that came along in the eighties of the way records were made when it went from uh, digital uh, analog to digital, and the uh, initial the initial music that came out of out of uh, the digital studios was so sounded so hideous to me um really it sounded like nails being scraped down a blackboard you know that it, it just sounded brittle and uh, with no depth and the, and you couldn't get anything from the equipment if you wanted more treble you know you could turn a knob and up the treble came you know but there wasn't the thing about the, the digital gear with all the valves and things in it, that as they they gave the music some warmth and some feel, you know, and you'd play into that, play into the what the how the desk was was dealing with the with the sound it was being given, and uh, I found that um, as I say, I didn't really twiddle knobs myself, but I was really good at talking to people that who didn't know how to twiddle knobs who were sitting next to me. I was very good at getting them to uh to do what i heard anyway whether whether i was right or wrong you know that's um that's another question but i I, you know i was young and and uh confident and and uh was you know my time had come you know but when the when digital came along i didn't uh i didn't stick with it it seemed seemed way more tiresome to me then and um you were you were supposed the producer was supposed to sort of do it all as well, which I had no interest in learning how it all worked. There continue to be people making more or less music in the styles that you're used to, but there just there just wasn't a place for you to be a, a producer in the no. modern industry of the early eighties. No, there, there there wasn't. I was really a sort of a gifted amateur, really, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And and in and in those days, it didn't seem to be a big deal. You know, you you could say, well, you know, it's coming along. You know, we got some pretty when you'd have to go into the record company you know and they'd ask you how it was going you said, well pretty good pretty good you know we got about halfway through it you know but we had a bad day yesterday um no one was really into it and uh we, we um, i don't know we had a couple of bad songs but i think we'll we'll get over it today and um that used to be okay you know and and then suddenly when the equipment got a little more fancy suddenly they'd say what do you mean they didn't feel like it you know, there's no such thing as they didn't feel like it. We need, uh, they should always feel like it. And it, we, we know it can, the equipment can deal with that. Anyway, I, I, all, I, all, I'm, all I'm trying to say is that, that I, I fell out of love with it. I guess in the early 80s, you would have been the ripe old age of, what, 31, 32, I think probably at that point. Was there a sense that the industry at large had passed you by and that it you know that you might not be able to continue to make music the way you've been able to or was it really just that specific part of the industry Mm, i I think i think a bit of both actually i think i definitely round round about the uh the mid 80s i i 
I really did feel, and also because I'd been a, a, a producer as well as a record maker and an appearer on TV. And I should add, even though you know, even though you were only in your early thirties at that point, you had been in the industry and you'd been making music for a while. Yes, yes, I suppose about uh, ten or twelve years, something like that. But I was very aware that my um, my my shtick had grown old, you know, and and the public had moved on as they do. And uh, I, I was very, very aware of that and uh, sensitive to it. And because I got fed up of it as well, I really thought, well, you know, you've had your go. You know, you've got to think of something else to do now. If you want to stay with this, don't just hang around, you know, living off the, you know, ever, ever diminishing audience, you know, who, um, who just want you to keep repeating the same, the same thing. That was my idea. That that was really was my idea of of hell. That would be. So I ha- I I um I did something about it. You know, it took took me a while, but I did something about it. You know, when you say think of something else, you mean a different angle to the music you're making, not not getting out of music altogether. Oh no, no, I I I uh, considered it. You know, <laughs> but then I thought, well, what else are you going to do? What other skills do I have? Yeah, quite. Also, I thought. You know, you, you. I thought, well, I've done on paper. I've done pretty well. You know, I've I've, uh, I've had a couple of hits myself, and uh, um, I've written a few decent songs and for, for for people, and you know, produced a few good records for for people, and you know, troubled the charts a, a bit. But I d- really didn't think that I'd done something fantastic. You know, re- re- something really interesting and really really good up to that point, and. Uh, that's when I hit on this idea, which um, which was to sort of prepare for getting older, really, in the in the business that didn't at that point give a toss for people who were in their thirties and and had had a go, you know. And thank you very much, especially in the UK, you know, they don't have a very uh, long memory. Once you've had your go, that's it. And I guess that's perfectly fair enough. But uh, I wanted to see if I could attract a new audience and hang on to the old ones. But I didn't, I knew some, some of the old ones would drop away because I didn't want to do that loud Chuck Berry music any, any more as much as I love Chuck Berry. You know, I didn't want to do that, that sort of noisy stuff anymore. I wanted to do something that was, um, that was going to work as I got older. It's an interesting way of putting it that on paper you've, done well and certainly from the outside looking in it appears that you've had a consistently successful career um but in that place and time when you were examining your successes and lack of successes up to that point do you get a sense of what could have happened to have made you feel genuinely successful or is that something that are you just wired to always have that feel a bit elusive mm, yeah so that's a that's a good question really i um i think that i um because of, of of my sort of history, you know, in the in the business, very early on, I had a sort of a brush with fame, or what it could be like, which really scared the pants off me. You know, I, I wasn't ready for it, and uh, and uh, it could it could have been a really catastrophic, you know. But I managed to sort of ride it out. But it made me it really changed my mind about uh, uh, about the blessing and the curse of fame and how you can 
control it you know if it's very it's quite difficult but i i made up my mind that i was going to try and control how successful i was i never wanted to be really really successful because it's frankly it's too much like hard work it's really really difficult to do that and enormous pressure and and uh, you've got to be nice to some really revolting people which i i didn't care for very much I thought it'd be much more fun to be one of those slightly elusive people that you you know where you can stick your head up when you've got something to alert the public to you know and then duck down again and become become anonymous and that way you can if you're clever you know you can make a pretty good living uh, out of the business and hang around with some nice people it's just a much more agreeable agreeable process and uh, an agreeable existence and uh, so that's what i i, I uh, launched myself out on to trying to be able to do having listened to some interviews that you did it, it sounded like before anything else before even the music before the songwriting you just wanted to be famous right that was really what was propelling you in the early days this is a pretty dramatic shift what was that moment what was that brush with fame and why did it have such a profound impact on you well, uh, it, it's a it's a fantastic uh, story, and uh, it's it, uh, it, and it's um, it's beautifully told in a book that Will Birch wrote called "No Sleep Till uh, Canvey Island." It was essentially about the pub rock scene in in London in the nineteen seventies. But in order to tell the the pub rock story, he had to tell the story of the band I was in, Brinsley Schwartz, and. When we were we were one of thousands and thousands of bands in the UK going up and down the motorways, you know, playing little clubs and colleges and things. There was endless, endless gigs you could play back then, and we were one of thousands. And we and we got sort of plucked out of obscurity by this management company who were fairly well. One of them in particular was a, actually was a crook. <laughs> in the music industry <laughs> yes but uh, but they were very engaging people you know and we were young and very keen and ambitious you know and we got plucked uh, out of obscurity here and they decided to make us famous and uh, in order to do that they managed to get us a gig at the Fillmore East which in 1969 was about the coolest place in the world you could play and uh, we were very keen we we were a sort of pop group really but we had we wanted to get on the college scene we you know we wanted we didn't want to play in front of these spotty girls that we were playing for sort of prepubescent girls you know that it sounds it sounds like it might be fun to be screamed at you know by <laughs> by these kids but in fact when we found that we were no oil paintings in our group but even even we you know attracted this sort of attention so Kiffington Lodge definitely uh, had to yeah it was it, it, it you know we wanted to get out of this and, and um, do something a little more highfalutin and we and to play at the film Fillmore East was you know a dream would be a dream come true anyway then we managed to get a gig there opening for Quicksilver Messenger Service and Van Morrison. So that, that, that'll date it for you. And Quicksilver Messenger Service were top of the bill, by the way. This would have been just post them for Van Morrison. I suppose it would, uh, but certainly post Brown Eyed, Brown Eyed Girl. In fact, uh, Moondance had just come out, so it was post, 
uh, Astral Weeks. It was that was the record he was promoting. And uh, anyway, and in order to um, to alert people to the fact that we were playing at the Fillmore East, this management company rented uh, an air a, a seven oh seven. That was the um, jumbo jet of its day from Air Lingus and filled it up with journalists to come and flew them over for the weekend to come and see us play. Now, nothing had ever been like this had ever been done. And they had journalists, not just from the music press, but from the straight press as well. And, and, and I mean that there was that in those days, I don't know if you remember this, Brian, but there was a straight world and a kind of hippie world, you know, and they who sort of rubbed along okay. You know, they didn't really understand each other. You know, at least that's what we thought. But um, not only that, did they, ha- did they have music journalists and sort of news journalists on this plane, but they had people from trout fishermen, you know, popular mechanics, uh, you know, every magazine, absolutely anyone who could write a column got a seat on this, on this flight to come and write, a, write about this sort of crappy group you know we were pretty crappy really but and then everything that could go wrong did go wrong they were going to make a film of this quite quite recently about of this incident but really it was it was so zany um and so crazy that i don't think they could make a satisfactory film of it no it would just seem too too ridiculous and it'd be too hard to explain this this sort of pot smoking hippie world and the straight world that existed at that time and which doesn't now. I mean, everyone's hip now, right? <laughs> there aren't any straight people left. <laughs> that was enough to, uh, to put you oh, on a different oh, path. Oh, sorry. Well, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes. Um, well, everything that could go wrong did go wrong, but we'd spent the two or three months before we went off on this trip boasting and swanking around town, telling everyone, you know, how... This was a dream come true for you. Yeah, it was a dream come true. Yeah. And of course, we were t- just totally not able to, to cope with, uh, you know, doing a show like this. We just weren't good enough. We uh, we couldn't get admission to the states because of uh, some trouble we'd been in, and we, so with the with the result that we arrived at the Fillmore, we were supposed to rehearse for a week at the Fillmore. You know, it was going to be very le- leisurely, you know, and, and with on all this equipment that we'd we'd uh, ordered up for the show, which was all the stuff of the, our dream equipment, you know, that we we wished we could had. But of course, we didn't know how to play it, make a sound with it or anything like that. We were just young and stupid. And we arrived at the Fillmore about an hour before showtime, because that's when we could finally get a flight into uh, into New York. So everything went wrong. And uh, the, with the result that all these journalists wrote that up and uh, and it was for, for a young sort of uh, ambitious kid, it was uh, or kids and we were all. It was incredibly embarrassing. And we realized we made a terrible, terrible mistake. But instead of breaking up, which we, you know, should have done, um, we decided to stay together. I think it was because we didn't, we'd been through this experience and we couldn't imagine how being out in the world with relating to people who hadn't been through it would be like. So we rented this house. We managed to have a, get a couple of, sh- of gig, big paying gigs because of 
you know, because we were we were famous, but people would just want to come along and sort of throw stones at us or something like that. You know, so we, we had a few big paying gigs, which which financed us for a for a few months, you know, and um, and really we got in this house and we just started practicing and practicing and practicing, and uh, till we did actually get pretty good, and we got rid of all the big amps and things like that we had we got little tiny amps and we started playing you know playing away and listening to and of course because we lived in the same house we started all listening to the same music it was like going to some sort of weird uh, sort of um, seminary or something like that you know some some religious sort of retreat (laughs) in a way because we um we slowly got better and better and in the strange way that the way it works over here in this country, if you make a big, big mistake like we did, and and, and, be, and are the laughing stock, after a while, I mean, I guess it's in the, the same in the states. But after a while, suddenly it turns around, and and the fact that you've been that laughing stock suddenly makes you sort of stronger, and people are rather start sticking up for you, you know. And if also you you're actually found to be pretty good, after all. And not just a joke, it works even more for you in your favour. And along came this pub rock scene where the band started in London. It only really was a London phenomenon, really. They tried it in a few other cities. It didn't really work. But in London, bands started playing in, in, in these pubs free. Um, and there'd always been music in, uh, in pubs, but they were really, it was like Irish traditional music or or bands just doing the top 20 you know that that kind of thing or crooners you know uh, that sort of thing but actual to have bands that actually wrote their own tunes and uh, had a you know big repertoire and we were very influenced by this american band who started it all off uh, eggs over easy and we took we we sort of pinched their act really they wrote really great songs but they also had a very very unsnobby attitude to, to the covers that they did they had chose their covers really great that was a brand new thing in the uk doing a some really obscure r&b tune you know but and then a version of something that was number one in the charts that week you know do like, like nrbq uh, did I, I guess you know that that sort of attitude to it. So we started doing this and built this reputation. Suddenly we were packing these places out and people had forgotten about this, uh, the fact that we were, uh, you know, a laughing stock. And then slowly that went into the punk era. And that's when a voice said, cashier number three, please, you know, and, um, and it was my turn and I stepped forward and, uh, these opportunities to stiff records and and people asking me to produce their records and things. Why is it that punk was your turn? I mean, you're one. I, I get the feeling that you're not a particularly big fan of most of punk or you know most of punk that's come along since then. And two, obviously, the music that you were playing at the time, Rockpile and those first few solo records were faster than they are now. But you're decidedly not a not a punk act. Why did that fit for you? Why was that a good time for you to cash in that check? Well, um, you're, you're right. Yes, uh, the punk music really didn't interest me at all, really. The, the sort of mainstream thrashy uh, 
you know, white kids just flailing away. That's of no interest to me at all. I was too old, really. I'd been, I'd been a mod. You know, I liked R and B and country and Western music and uh, you know, and that sort of thing. And trying to be good. You know, I wanted to actually be good. Play your instrument well. But, but the um, the whole Fillmore East debacle had had made me extremely um, aware of of how fickle. The, the business could be and how when I before I got into the music business I was that was ridiculous idea of how it worked went you know it was completely wrong so I became I found that I became an outsider you know that's what I that's that's what I wanted to be it's how I positioned myself as well and I enjoyed this uh, uh, I enjoyed this little little groove I'd got for myself and I found that the punk rock scene really helped that because I, I loved the, the, the sort of mayhem and the mischief that, that it was caused, even though the music didn't interest me very much. But the mayhem and the mischief, oh, yes, that interested me a lot because it meant you could, you could make up the rules. And if you were, and especially for that sort of, I don't know, it, it, it seemed like a, like a long time. It, wasn't, it was probably about four or five weeks, something. But there were for about four or five weeks when people who really wouldn't have given me the time of day were losing their job. I'm talking about big wheels in record companies and things like that who wouldn't have given me the time of day. They were suddenly losing their jobs because they were out of touch. They couldn't, um, they, they didn't really know what was going on. And I'd fallen in by this time with some, ver- some like-minded people. You know, and we started this record label, and uh, and all these things fell into place. We found, you know, the back in those days, the uh, the music press in the UK, there was four or five music papers came out weekly, and they had um, huge circulation by by today's standards. And we knew the all the cool writers on these papers, and we used to go as they did, to the same sort of four or five pubs, one nightclub. You know, there wasn't that many places to go in London, really, for, for, to hang out. But we all used to uh, hang out and mingle, and we found that we could, with stiff records, if we got these journalists on our side, we could, have, we could inform the public weekly what we were up to we, we didn't have to go through a press they didn't have to go through a press department or anything to get the any gossip or anything. we could feed them gossip feed you know it was a it was a total you scratch my back we'll scratch yours we had this massive uh, network <laughs> and it, and the fact that it was kind of under the table you know not strictly playing by the rules that made it even more exciting all round and uh, and and we were able to play this outlaw act you know and be uh, be elusive it was incredibly exciting because we were for for these three or four weeks as i say the way i always imagine is, is the monkeys were, were running the zoo for 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 that time and it was uh, it was brilliant but they they soon got the the zoo keepers got back in charge again you know, pretty soon. But for just for, the, for those few weeks, it was fantastic. Having been through the ringer at a at a young age and hearing you describe it, you know, certainly musically and probably from the standpoint of maturity, you really weren't ready for that kind of exposure. Having been through that, are there any subsequent opportunities that you turned down because you didn't want to go through that kind of process again? 
Now that's a that's a really good that's a really good question. I'm I'm sure there were Brian, but I can't I can't um I can't remember what they might have been. Now it all seemed because sometimes you you'd go you'd have a go at something which is a little out of your range, your comfort zone. Yeah, just to see if you could do it. You know, just to see if you could do it. So I I can't honestly remember. I can't honestly remember, but. No, it's it's uh, no. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that is gone. I had heard you specifically describing the process of not writing what's so funny about peace of understanding, but coming to accept the way that people were interacting with the song and that it was a, you said it was sort of a, a rare, mature thought that you had at the time that almost people's interpretation of it doesn't really matter and that you don't need to to over explain it. And, and I get the sense that early on in your career, you really, you valued maturity, especially when it comes to being a songwriter. And I think a lot of people are in that, that boat, but there's an irony of being in music and, and life generally where you value maturity at a young age. And then as you get older, you begin to flee it. That's what the music business has been like around you. And it, it sounds like certainly you aspire to maturity early on, but you learn the lesson of not trying to flee it. Yes, yes, or or to to or to or to learn how to do it. You know, I mean, it's um, I suppose it's like uh, I'm thinking of the who's who's the painter who just paints blocks of color. Is it Rothko? Yeah, well, it's certainly Rothko. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm thinking of someone who's a, who's a bit more sort of um, sort of blocks of color now. Abstractions. Yeah, abstract, abstract. But you think, man, I could do that? You know, I, um, who who couldn't? But you know that Rothko probably draw a hand. You know, can draw the muscles of the body. You know, before you can start doing blocks of color. You know, but Picasso gotta... is a great example of that, right? I mean, you see his yeah. really kind of hyper realistic early work. It, exactly, and I suppose well, I'm not comparing myself to the, these people of course but i i mean it, that if what if you learn how the sort of tricks and of show business you know the 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 how to work a room you know how to chat up an audience all those sort of old pro tricks then you can use it to the way you want to use it you know that i suppose that was if that's where i as i understand what you mean by maturity um that i did want to do that i wanted to be sort of on the surface, a kind of old school entertainer, you know, but be a bit subversive, you know, be able to sort of, inf- you know, infiltrate and double cross as they used to, as they used to say, you know, that always interested me. W- wasn't anything to be, um, you know, embarrassed by or ashamed, uh, ashamed of. Uh, I, I sort of enjoyed that, the learning process. There's a famous Nick Kent quote about you. I think, what is it? The king of subversive pop to describe your earlier work. And hearing you describe it now, it's something that you were, it sounds like at least maybe in hindsight are very cognizant of and are very, are very conscious of. When you come out, uh, it's older now and just celebrated its 20th anniversary. But, you know, when you come out with an album like The Convincer, for example, which is a mature record, certainly is on the face of it. What are those subversions in there? You know, what, what are you doing to kind of buck some of these ideas? Well, the you know you make a good point, really, because when I was younger, that subverse that subversive pop thing was an, in a way an excuse for 
not having to really make a hit record. If you just say, oh, I could do that, you know, but uh, in fact, this is, uh, I, I choose to do this subversive version. It wouldn't have been punk to have a big hit record. No, no, I, I guess not, no. But yeah, it was all of the time, you know, I just did, did what I could at the time. But um, when, when you get a bit older, you think, well, what, wait a minute, the, the, real, the real goal here is to write some songs that people actually really want to hear, not just music journalists, you know, and, uh, and people, in the, people in the business, or your pals, you know, all sniggering in the toilets. <laughs> and, uh, and actually do some, you know, make, do some proper songs, write some proper songs that people really want to li- listen to. That's actually really subversive. At what point do you feel that you started if you feel like you have written proper songs, when did that really start happening for you? Well, uh, I, I suppose when I had this, this sort of realization in the, in the, in the eighties, you know, that's when I, and also I, when I started a very big thing for me was, um, was meeting and, and playing with, with Ry Kuda, who, who was quite, quite different from how I thought he was going to be. I was a real fan of his and still am, you know, God bless him. But um, uh, he was, I, I, I learned so much from him uh, of things that I really wanted to know about, you know, his, his, he, that, that I didn't necessarily think before I met him. I didn't think that he, I thought I might even know more than he did about it or, but it had all, all, all my thought processes had already a, occurred to to Rye, you know, <laughs> of figuring out how to uh, how to marry all this stuff up and how pop relate. You know, he's a consummate folk musician, really, but he loves pop music as well, and is really aware of how pop songs are put together. and And I I I found uh, that when I when I met him, you know, it was a real. It was a real eye-opener for me, you know, and I learned a, a lot from him. Having heard you describe the songwriting process, it sounds like that there is always this, and certainly this isn't specific to you, but that, that there is a, a tension between wanting to overcomplicate things and wanting to write the simplest song possible. Do you feel that at this point in your career that you've struck the right balance? Well, I, I think I, I get closer to it the older you get. I mean, um, sitting old coward said... Uh, trouble about getting older is no what did you say no sooner are you on than you're off i mean i think he was talking about the stage you know but uh, but it applies to life too yes it does that uh, you 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 do get closer and closer to it but never it's always slightly out of reach at least, at least to me it is you know but um uh, i think that some that, that it is subversive to 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 write very simple direct songs you know that's that is there's a there's a joy to that you know i i i do write songs with more than three chords in them but a really a really direct simple thought and uh, you know attractively presented to me is uh, you know about 3 minutes long to me is 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 absolutely ideal still there's just something gorgeous about um, about that idea, and I still uh, still aspire to it. And um, yeah, I've I've written. Um, you know, I think I've written. I, I wouldn't like to put a quantify it, but a, a lot of uh, of my best songs in later in later life, definitely. And I wrote some good ones when I was a kid too. But I didn't really know about songwriting. You know, that's when I listen back to stuff that I did when I was younger, which 
thought was pretty good. You know, I, I'd think, oh, man, why did you do that? You know, uh, that's you didn't have to do that bit, you know, that silly bit, you know, in, in there. And, 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 oh, Lord, you've done it again, you know, later on in the song, you know, even worse. But th- those sort of things, the, the craft of it, I think, I, I do think of myself much more of it as a sort of craftsman, really, than a, a sort of arti- artist. I make artistic decisions, but I don't really think of myself as an artist, you know, with uh, explaining my pain, you know, to, uh, to my wrapped audience I, I think of myself much more as a, as a sort of a tin pan alley guy really and um and, and i and i don't think that's a that's you know a, a shameful um not lot uh, but position i think part of maturing as an artist or just somebody who puts things out into the world i mean this is something i've certainly thought about myself is learning to accept the things that people like in your own work on their own terms of not begrudging people for not liking the right songs or liking the right songs for the wrong reasons. Um, I think about this in the context of So It Goes was the first song that I heard of yours that really, I heard it on some compilation somewhere and, and I was I was hooked. I know that it's a song that you at points in your career have not felt is is your best song. And, and I know that it sounds like maybe a little bit of Steely Dan kind of snuck in there and, and influenced it as well. But at least in the footage that I've seen, it's also the song that is opening up the, the straight jackets tour that you just did. So, you know, you've learned to, I don't know if re-embrace it is the right word, but at very least it's back in the repertoire. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a great, um, it's a great little tune I've suddenly discovered. <laughs> well, I had to be reminded, I had to be reminded by, you know, members of Lost Straight Jackets, that it might actually be quite a good tune for us to do, because so many people know it, and um, and it, it people really like it, you know, it, and there's there's few, there's few things more, more pleasurable than standing on a stage and singing a tune that you can tell people are really pleased to hear. There are a few of those, I think, that, that you... You, you when when you come up against them when you're older that you see them in a different uh, see them in a different light and figure out a way of being able to do them that doesn't feel like you're just uh, rehashing something ancient. Yeah, well, that gets back to the Chuck Berry comment of earlier. You couldn't and you wouldn't want to do it in exactly the way that you did it on that first record. Y- yeah, quite, quite. I haven't got such a high voice either. I had heard you in an interview describe part of what has kept bringing you back to the songwriting process is, and I think at the time you put it, that you wanted to write, I think it was a half dozen great songs. And obviously, as you said earlier, you don't really like quantifying it. You're, you are obviously, if not your greatest, one of your greatest critics, but where are you at in that quest? Do you feel like you've gotten to six or are you close? Yeah, I I I, I think I've written a, a few a few good good ones. I, I I mean I suppose it's a I think of my sort of catalogue. I don't know how many songs I've written. I I um I really I really don't. I mean it's hundreds. It is hundreds. And and those are those are the ones that have been published, you know. But um it's so it's, it's way, there's way more the ones that just have fallen by the wayside and things like that. But I think probably it's a it's all in the ear of the beholder, of course, but I think that it's like all pop music. I would think my 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 catalogue is is like all pop music, which I would think is kind of 
85% rubbish uh, or forgettable, should we say? <laughs> because as I say it's a, it's in the in the um, ear of the beholder. Fifteen percent is still a pretty good. That's still a pretty good rate, all things considered. Yes, yes. Well, I would think ten percent. Ten percent is pretty good, you know, on a scale of one to ten. And I and I think five percent is um, well, it's probably a bit generous. I I I would think maybe you know three percent is very good, and two percent is as good as anybody's stuff i would think as good as anybody's stuff but the rest of it i think is is you you've got to write 12 tunes really to get a, anything that's any good i i, I think is the is this is the average that two percent at what point in the process do you realize that it's part of the two percent hmm, that's a teaser yes that the, the I think it's when you encounter them again, you know, when you're thinking, well, I've, uh, let me have a look through the catalogue and see what we've, what we've got. If I've missed something, I'd see. And you pick the guitar up and you start playing the song, but you don't do it in the way you've done it. You did it on record because you haven't, I, I just haven't listened to the record. You know, I don't sit around at home, like most people listening to my own record, but you'll start playing it and maybe not even half remember it really, but you'll start playing it and, and, going through the lyric and you'll start stripping not whole lines out, but certainly extra words and the ands and buts and so's, which you do put all that stuff in to prop it all up when you're uh, writing the song, you know, to get the, get the lyric all sitting on the melody. But after a few years, you, you can't remember all that. You just want to tell the story. See, all that stuff falls away, but you've got all this, hopefully, this sort of maturity and you can suddenly find your t- you can tell the story in a much more convincing um, convincing way. You think, man, this is actually a pretty good tune. Yes, please, I'll have this. And uh, and so I hope that you know, long may that process happen. And then every so often you write a, a new one. But I'm very critical about you, you know I'm, I'm not as prolific as I uh, have been anymore, and I'm much more impatient with things. When I come up with things that I. I've heard myself do before. I, I get I get impatient uh, w- with them. I'm always trying to sort of surprise myself and think, man, who wrote that? Not you. <laughs> do you still surprise yourself? Yeah, from time to time. Yeah, I do. I do actually. Thank goodness. Yeah, I do. It's a yes. It's a strange way of making a living. 